It is good to be back because over the last, what, 14 months or so, um, we have missed out on a lot of things. You know, we haven't celebrated birthday parties. We haven't had gatherings. We haven't done all of these kind of things. And for me, one of the big things that I was really not happy that we missed out on uh, last year was the Summer Olympics. And did you even realize the Olympics are about to start? The Olympics are coming up this summer. They just pushed them back a year. They're in Tokyo in 2021. Um, I am a big fan of the Olympics, and I think one of the things I love about the Olympics is that there's all these weird sports in the Olympics (laughs) that we would never, like, who plays these sports? Who grows up doing these things? Like, synchronized swimming. Who, who in the world, like in their backyard, is doing the synchronized swimming thing in their pool? I don't know how that is. Um, uh, and, and, and there's all those kinds of things, you know. Um, there's a thing called the pentathlon, right? Now, most of you have heard of the pentathlon. I'll bet you none of you or almost none of you even know what it involves. There's five... Uh, events. It's like the decathlon has 10 events for men. The, de- the pentathlon is for women, five events. And the five events of the pentathlon are as follows. And they make total sense. They just fit together perfectly. Fencing, horseback riding, running, pistol shooting, and swimming. <laughs> so you got to be good at those five things. I think they they separated them because they tried putting them all together and the horses were drowning during the swimming thing and all they said, this is not working. But, so some of the sports in the Olympics, for me, are really cool because there is no defensive aspect to that sport. And I think that's kind of cool, like swimming. Can you imagine if you're the coach of an Olympic swimmer and you're kind of hype up your athlete right before the race and you're like, okay, here's our plan for the race today. I think you can win the gold, but here's what you're going to do. When you get in, just jump in the pool and start splashing the guy next to you. And, and if he gets ahead of you, just grab his ankle, pull him down to the bottom and hold him down. Eventually, if you hold him down long enough, you will be the winner of the race, right? That's not how they do it, right? That's not how they do swimming. Why? Because how do you win at swimming? With offense, not with defense. Another one is gymnastics. Coach pulls the girl aside. She says, listen, I know the balance beam is coming up and you've been working on it, but I've been thinking, this balance beam thing is dangerous. You do a flip, you could land on your head. So here's what I say. I've never in my life seen anybody win a gold medal who fell off the balance beam. So here's what you do. You just get on that beam and cling to it like this. And just hold on and hold on and hold on until the time is up and you are guaranteed not to fall. That is not what they do, right? That, because in gymnastics, you win by taking risks, right? The girl who does the craziest, most dangerous thing and lands it and sticks the landing, she's going to win, right? One more. This is a Winter Olympic example. Figure skating. Girl's about to go on the ice and do her routine, and the coach pulls her aside and says, here's the thing. I've been watching. I've been watching everybody warming up, and you know what I noticed? The ice is super slippery. (laughs) So here's what you do. 
I, I want you to just hold on to the wall the whole time during your event. Now, you can move, but hold that wall. Don't let go of the wall, because if you let go of the wall, you are probably going to slip, and I've never seen anyone win when they slip and fall in figure skating. Is that what they do in figure skating? No. How do you win in figure skating? By doing something risky, right? You have to go out there and do something. You have to um, advance your agenda. You have to move ahead and do something great in spite of the risks. And we all know that, right? But let me tell you something that I think not a lot of Christians know. That defense is not supposed to be played in the church either. The church, Christianity, the mission of the church is not about defense. It is all about offense. And if you think about this for a second, it's pretty obvious where the body of Christ is getting off track. Because God has given us offensive instructions, and the church's natural tendency is to play defense. And if you don't believe that, just go on the social media of your Christian friends and see what kinds of things they're posting about. Defensive posts that are about being against this and against that and condemning this and being afraid of that. Defensive against worldly ideas. Defensive against the, the attitudes of our culture, defensive against the media, defensive against other posts that people have posted, and now we got to stand up and fight for our point of view. And, and there's this danger for us as Christians that we would get into the mode where our main purpose is to protect ourselves. We, and, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with protecting yourself in certain situations, there's nothing wrong to you moms out there who are not letting your kid get out there on their skateboard or get out there on their bike without a helmet on. But I just got to tell you, on behalf of old people, if I had showed up to my friends on my bike with a helmet on, I would have needed the helmet because they would have beat me up. And, and things have changed, and I get it, but you know what? This tendency to bubble wrap our children and protect them from everything, bubble wrap ourselves and protect ourselves from everything, the worst thing that could possibly happen would be if someone would say anything that might offend my sensibilities. So you go on any, any college campus now around this country, and for the most part, they all have these zones where it's the greatest crime in the world to say anything that offends anyone. I don't like vanilla ice cream. <gasps> As a vanilla lover, I'm brokenhearted because of this. And you literally get expelled for this kind of stuff. You stand up and say anything in these, in these zones. Then, then, and exercise your free speech, you might offend someone. And if you offend someone, what could be worse than that? Guys, I got to tell you, I, I don't really, I'm not speaking to the lost world out there. I'm speaking to the body of Christ. We got to knock it off with the I'm so afraid to get offended stuff. You know, if somebody, somebody doesn't believe what you believe, they're not the enemy. You know what they are? The mission field. <laughs> 
right? And we have to get that straight. And we got to stop making it about protecting ourselves, insisting upon our rights, protecting our churches, discrediting our enemies. You know what Jesus said you're supposed to do with your enemies? Oh, does anyone know? Come on. What did he? Love. He said you're supposed to love your enemies. You know what that makes them? You're not enemies, right? There, there aren't enemies out there for us to protect ourselves from. Now, listen, I'm not saying don't make choices for your kids and what they watch and listen to. Don't put a helmet on your kids. I'm not saying all that stuff. I'm saying that we've got to get past this idea of thinking that we win by defending ourselves. That's not what the church is about. And I get it, I do. I understand why so many Christians are so busy playing defense. It is a scary world out there. there there's spiritual attacks. There are temptations. There's a ton of false teaching out there. The, the world has different values than the body of Christ. And it makes perfect sense for Christians to be defensive. I see it every day all around me. I get it. But the place I don't see it is in this book. I don't see it in the Word of God that somehow we're supposed to live this defensive approach to life. In fact, everything I see in here tells me that, that success is about laying down your life. Success is about losing your life. Success is about giving it away. And I'm afraid that the body of Christ has to some degree gotten so enamored with this idea of insisting on our rights and protecting ourselves and enforcing our point of view on people who disagree that we have lost sight of the fact that we're here for the exact opposite purpose. We're here to lay down our lives for the glory of God and the benefit of other people. So last week we started talking about the mission that we're on together with Christ. We're calling this series Co-Mission because we're in it together and we're in it with him. And do and you remember we talked about last week those famous last words of Jesus, right? Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Let me say it again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He did not say, sit therefore and enjoy life. Now, does God mind if you enjoy life? No, it says he came that we might have life and that more abundantly. He came to give us abundant life. But what we think is going to give us abundant life is not what gives us abundant life. We think that if we could just protect ourselves and be comfortable and never get stretched and never get bothered and never get offended, then we'll have this wonderful abundant life. He goes, no, no, you are created for the adventure. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. He says in Acts chapter 1 uh, verse 8, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Do those sound like defensive commands? You can't reach a lost world while you're sitting in a corner protecting yourself and making sure you never get hurt. You can't spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. You can't make disciples of all nations while you're clinging to the balance beam just trying to keep from falling. And those closing statements that Jesus made, 
It would be one thing if those were just the only time he ever said anything crazy like that. But Jesus, everything he said was crazy. Everything he said went against the grain of everything society believes. I mean, he was constantly talking like this. Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book of the New Testament, chapter 9, Luke chapter 9. And we're going to pick it up in the middle of the chapter in verse 18. We give you a second to get there on your phones or if you've got a um, leather Bible in your hands or you're looking it up on your iPad or whatever. Here we go. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and, que and he questioned them, saying, Who do people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So he says, who are people saying that I am? And they're like, oh, some people say you're this guy. Some people say you're that guy. He's like, who do you say that I am? And in another one of the gospels, uh, he actually responds to Peter by saying, you didn't even know that for yourself. The Holy Spirit gave you that answer. And the answer is this. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the one we've all been waiting for. You're the one we've been looking for. You're the deliverer that the Old Testament talks about. That's who you are. And Jesus goes, good for you, Peter. Here's a gold star. You got it right. And then Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And in the other gospel accounts, it has Peter then uh, getting all offended by that statement, pulling him aside, saying, hey, I don't want to do this in front of the other guys, but you know, Jesus, you missed that one bad. And he starts correcting him. The Bible says rebuking him because he said that he had to suffer, that he was going to die, that he was going to be delivered over, and that he was going to be put to death. And Peter wasn't cool with that. And Jesus responded to Peter's gracious statement by calling him Satan. <laughs> so apparently it's fairly important to Jesus that Peter gets this, right? So his mission, Jesus, he says, I'm the Christ, the anointed one, the one who's been sent here on mission. That's who I am. So here's what you have to know about me. I came to die. They're going to kill me. They're going to reject me. They're going to deliver me over. I'm going to be beaten and scourged and hung on a cross and raised again on the third day. His mission involved death. And it was that mission into which he called us. This is a co-mission. Look at verse 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whose cross? He's talking to us. <laughs> I have no problem with the fact that Jesus had a cross. I kind of like it. I'm really thankful for the cross. 
I praise God for the cross. Anybody in agreement with that? Right? I'm fine with the cross as long as it's his cross. But he says that if I'm going to join him in his mission, if I'm going to be a part of his family, if I'm going to be a real follower of Jesus, I must take up my cross. Now that's a problem for me. I don't feel so good about that. And then I think, well, okay, so maybe that means every now and then I'm going to have to, you know, I'm in line at the church potluck and there's just one piece of pie left and I'm going to have to pass it by and let Terry have it. <laughs> we all have our cross to bear. Right? And, and I can live with that. But he doesn't say that. He goes, if you want to come after me, you have to take up your cross when? Daily. Daily! Come on, Lord. Daily? Like, okay. I mean, even Jesus just had to go to the cross that one day. <laughs> I got to do this daily, Lord. Come on. Where's the grace? Where's the grace? I'm supposed to take up my cross daily and follow him. What does it mean to take up your cross? Guys, to us, the cross is too often a beautiful piece of jewelry that we wear on a chain around our neck. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, you might have a really beautiful picture of the cross, but you know what a cross is? It's a torture device. What if he said, you must take up your electric chair daily and follow me? Would we be walking around with little electric chairs hanging from our necklace? We, we may have forgotten how serious it is to have to take up your cross. See, what are we trying to protect? The Christian life is about danger. The Christian life is about sacrifice and service and submission and giving and all these things that don't come easily for us. That's why we are here. We're not here just for great worship. Man, I love, I'm telling you guys, it is helping my heart so much to be in the room with a bunch of you and the band on the stage and we are singing songs of worship to God. Anybody else enjoying that? Oh, so great. So thankful. I have missed it so much. But you know what? When you get to heaven, the worship's going to be even better. Don't, don't be thinking that, that oh, it's, it's all, well, our worship band, we got this great worship band, and Ricky's kind of funny looking, but that guy can sing, you know? I, and, 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 and I connect with God when we gather for worship. Guys, you're not here just to gather for worship. That'll be better in heaven. If it was about the worship, God would just zap you home and take you to heaven the moment you come into a relationship with him. And we're not here for the wonderful fellowship. It is good, and the Bible commands us to have fellowship, and we're going to see that in our study of the book of Acts. But that's not your primary reason for being here. Guess what? The fellowship is better where? In heaven. You're going to have great fellowship. The potluck's in heaven. And they're all fat-free. Yes. Yeah. Amen. Why are we here? Why are we still on earth? 
Why are we still in a place where we have to deal with opposition, where we have to deal with temptation, where we have to deal with the flesh, where we have to deal with sickness and death and grief and pain and hunger and disillusionment and confusion? Why are we here? We are here on mission. And through this whole series, I'm going to be reminding you of that again and again and again. Because when we gather, we don't think of being on mission. And when we scatter, too often we don't think of being on mission. And God wants it drilled into our brains that whether we're here in the, in the building um, on the church campus, whether we're at home, whether we're in a cubicle at work, whether we're on the 210 freeway during traffic, wherever we are, we are on mission. Why did Hudson Taylor go to China? Was it because he liked Chinese food? It was because nobody in China had ever heard the name of Jesus Christ. And since then, there are more Christians in China today, quite possibly, than there are people in America. In a nation in which it's illegal to spread the gospel. Why did Amy Carmichael go to India to take care of starving, broken, hurting children? Was it because she thought a trip abroad would be fun? No, it's because she was on mission. Why did Martin Luther King Jr. go to Birmingham? Was it because he heard the food in the jail was tremendous? No, it's because he was on a mission. Why did Jesus Christ go to the cross? Was it to get a great view of the city? No. It's because he's here on Mission. He endured the cross, the Bible says, despising the shame for the joy set before him that his father would welcome him to the right hand of the father in the throne of God and say to him, well done, my son. Jesus had been sent by his father on a mission to seek and to save that which was lost. And when we as Christians refuse to join that same mission, the consequences are dire. In Matthew chapter 25, you can just turn over there. It's just a couple books to the left from Luke. In Matthew chapter 25, um, Jesus tells this famous story, and I won't read the whole thing to you because it's the, it's the parable of the talents, right? And it's a story that Jesus tells about this, um, this landowner, this master who gathers three of his employees, and he says, I'm going to go on a trip, and so I want you to take care of my affairs while I'm gone. And he, he gives one of them uh, five talents, and to one of them he gives two talents, and to one of them he gives one talent. And after a long time, he comes back, right? And we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 5 um, and verse 24. But before we get there, when he comes back, the guy with the five talents says, um, I invested and, and now I have ten talents. Here's your money. And the guy with the two talents says, I invested and I turned the two into four. Here's your money. And then he talks to the last guy. Matthew 25, 24. I guess I need to get into Matthew 25 because Matthew 24 is not about the same thing. Matthew 25 Verse 24, 
And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went away and hid your talent in the ground. So here, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given um, and he who and he will have an abundance. But to the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The guy didn't steal his money. He just protected it. Why? Why is the master so angry at this guy for burying the talent? It's not because he didn't make a profit. It's because of his motivation. I was afraid of me getting hurt. And because I was afraid of me getting hurt, I did not do what the master, what was in the master's best interest, what was in the master's plan, what the master had called me to be about. Instead, I made it about me and I protected me. I bubble wrapped myself and I protected myself and I said, there's no way I'm going to get in trouble for this. And he ends up in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is serious about this stuff. Listen, I know this isn't a very fun sermon. <laughs> I'm telling you, hey, but you know, come back, bring a friend. <laughs> I'll yell at them. <laughs> but my friends, this is really serious. Too many of us are living our lives like the unfaithful servant. I'm in protective mode. I'm in defensive mode. I'm in make sure I have enough mode. And Jesus goes, it's about laying down your life. It's about giving your stuff away. It's about sacrificing for God and others. Jesus makes it clear. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1, okay? Because um, yeah, this is a, a sermon in the book of Acts. So let's go to Acts chapter 1. And um, Jesus in Acts chapter 1 makes it clear, right? In verse 8, we talked about this already. He made it clear in verse 8. He says, hey, you're supposed to go out and bring them back. You're supposed to make disciples of all nations, all that kind of stuff. And then um, in the following verses, we get starting in verse, uh, let's start in verse 12. In verse 12, they finally make it to the upper room. They start to pray. And then this next section in Acts chapter 1, I know I'm out of time. I'm just going to touch on this briefly. But in this next section in Acts, Acts chapter 1, he just talks about this briefly. And nobody ever preaches on it. Nobody ever preaches in the middle part in the second half of Acts chapter 1. We do Acts 1 verse, verse 8, and then we, and we go, and then they did some administrative stuff, and then Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came and the party started. That's what we do. But here's something that happens in Acts chapter 1. They have to add another apostle. They need another witness because Judas is dead. 
And there's supposed to be 12. And so they pick these two guys, and, and let's pick it up in verse 21. Peter speaking, he says, Therefore it's necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the, that, um, let me start again. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, and that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, yes, Lord, you know the hearts of men. Show uh, which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry of apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. And you've never heard a sermon preached on this. Because it's boring. Okay. But think about Matthias, you guys. Matthias! Remember Matthias? Remember those other passages where you see Matthias and he's working miracles and raising the dead? You never see Matthias again. His name is never mentioned in the Bible. Just this one verse. Matthias, you're the new apostle. He shows up on the little puzzles that the kids get with the 12 apostles' names. and Everybody's like, Matthias? Yeah, Matthias. He never did anything that we heard of. There's, he has no fame He's, he's the nobody of the apostles. Why do we even know about him? Why does Luke, even by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, mention this? It, it never comes up again. Why? I don't know for sure, but I have a hunch. It's because of the qualifications listed for Matthias. How did he qualify to be one of the witnesses? He had to be someone who had first-hand eyewitness knowledge of the risen Christ. You can't have a witness in a court of law who is testifying to what he heard somebody said, but somebody said and somebody saw. No, he, that's called hearsay. It has to be a first-person account. You have to know because you've seen it. And you may be thinking, you know, this, this great mission that God has called us on and we're supposed to make disciples and all that kind of stuff. I don't know any answers to Bible questions. I don't know the difference between an epistle and a proverb. I have no idea why there's multicolored horses in the book of Revelation. I don't know how Noah got all those people on the, or all those animals on the ark. I don't know how Jonah could have possibly lived three days in a fish. I'm not the guy. I am not the girl who is going to be a witness because I don't even understand most of this stuff. That's not why Matthias got hired. He didn't get made a witness because he had seminary training. He didn't get made a witness because he was a great orator. He didn't get made a witness because he was famous or impressive. They made him a witness because he had been with Jesus the whole time. Are you qualified for this mission? In Acts 4.13, they get Peter and John get dragged before the council because they're preaching Jesus. And they ask him about it and they just tell them, well, this is what we experienced with him. And then the council says, 
when they looked at Peter and John, they recognized that they were uneducated and untrained men, but they recognized them as having been with Jesus. Having been with Jesus. Acts 4.13 is the reason I stand on this platform this morning. Because when the Lord called me to be the senior pastor of this church, my answer was clear and direct. No chance. No. And the reason was simple. I didn't have the education. I didn't have the experience. I didn't have the training. And I knew I couldn't do it. And as I was reading in my quiet time, I came across Acts 4.13. And when they recognized that Peter and John were both uneducated and untrained men, they recognized them as having been with Jesus. And so I leave you with this question, those of you who are shaking in your boots going, how can I be a part of this commission? How can I live a dangerous life? How can I put myself out there? How can I take these kind of chances? My question is not how educated are you? My question is not how's your Greek and Hebrew? My question is not whether or not you can recite scripture backward and forward. My question is simply this, have you been with Jesus? Do you have first-hand knowledge that he's alive and well? Listen, I will debate you till the cows come home. I'm pretty good at this Bible stuff. I will debate you all day and argue about science and religion and the possibilities and the reliability of Scripture, and we could talk about that all day. But if you really want to know, if you say, Doug, how do you know that you know that you know that you know that Jesus is really the risen Lord? I'll tell you, there's only one reason I really know that I know that I know. It's because I know him. It's because I've been walking with him. Because I've seen his activity in my life and I've seen his power to overcome darkness. It's because I know him. And so my question to you is, do you know him? If so, welcome to the mission team. God has a plan for you and it's offensive. Let's pray. God, we just want to say thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, your grace in our lives. We thank you that you did not sit back in the comfort of heaven, shaking your head at the lostness of people, but that you took the mission on and you came to earth, Lord Jesus, that we might be set free. And you have left us here to be a part of that mission. Oh God, it's scary for us. It's dangerous for us. We're afraid to be rejected. We're afraid to be hated. We're afraid to be misunderstood. We're, we're afraid of, of risking. But God, you've called us to abundant life that is far and above anything any of us can imagine. And so use us, Lord, we pray, on this great co-mission. In Jesus' name, amen.